It's no use. They said it would be no contest. We all learned no guts, no glory, no pain, and no gain. But there is no way to tell because in the end, this whole acting thing could be a no-go. But no sweat, no problem, or as they say in Australia, no worries. This is a no-brainer, no harm done, because any time an acting career can be no dice. But please take no offense. From now on, no more Mr. Nice Guy. No way, no how, no can do, no kidding. But the best part, if you don't get a role, there's no hard feelings because there's no strings attached. After all, an acting career is no laughing matter because sometimes there's no rhyme nor reason. For our show tonight, I will not take no for an answer because we are at the point of no return. There is no mistaking, there is no way out tonight. There is no avoiding the word no. How can one word with just two letters keep so much from getting done? Welcome to a Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is Matthew Del Nembro. And if Matthew's name is familiar to you, it's because you've seen him on television in many shows, one of them, The Sopranos, but you've also seen him on West Wing. You have seen him on a wonderful miniseries called Goliath, but also most recently on Scandal. Also, to support his brand, he is the, the host of a wonderful podcast called 10,000 No's, and he has just released a book called 10,000 No's, How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your at Yes. Matthew Del Negro, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's great to be here. And Matthew, while I hope you appreciate, the reason I started is that word no is in the lexicon to all of us. And in your great book, you talked about Malcolm Gladwell from the introduction about the 10,000 hours, but you took a different approach to it. Let's get into the book right from the get-go, and then I want to back up. So tell us about this word no and why it was so deep in your psyche you created both a podcast and a book about it. Well, uh, really the derivation of the title where it came from uh, years ago, I started being asked to go speak to uh, these MFA programs, the Masters of Fine Arts programs in Los Angeles as, uh, I say kids, but it wasn't always kids. There were adults in there as well. People were graduating from these three-year programs. And essentially, I was brought in to talk to them about, okay, now you're graduating. <clears throat> what is life going to be like as a working actor? So I would go in there and just, you know, it was off the cuff. I'd ask them what they were worried about, challenges, and, and then end up telling some stories, uh, some of which are in the book. You know, they're kind of like the greatest hits of like auditions, good, good moments, bad moments. And I, without thinking of it, I started to tell them basically your job is going to be what my job is, which is I'm told no for a living. What we know about you is you were not, unlike many actors who, by the time they were four or five years old, they were dead set. I'm going to Hollywood or I'm going to the stage. You went to Boston College. You were an English literature major and you played lacrosse. But something happened along the way that completely changed your mindset. And it had to do with once you left the Boston area and you headed to a study abroad. 
since this is a show about a transformation, could you please recount what happened and where, from reading the book, in my mind, this is where I believe, from what I know of you, where your transformation occurred. I went to Italy between sophomore and junior year. And while abroad, uh, my sister had given me a journal before I left. And the first couple of days I was there, you know, I looked back at those journal entries and they were very obligatory kind of, you know, today I went to the piazza kind of thing, you know, very boring. I didn't even want to write them, but I felt like I should. Um, but I was going out with a girl from BC who was also in Italy, but not in the same city as me. And long story short, we broke up while over there. And that kind of just sparked me to go to this journal and really just a bunch of stuff came up for me that was, I guess, you know, locked inside that was from my upbringing. And the gist of it was I was kind of going down this path and I, I was doing well on that path, seemingly from the outside, but there was something inside me that was just not cool with the direction I was going and felt like this is not, this is not all I want to do. I kind of, you know, it was, it was mixed up with career path and, and, you know, playing lacrosse and everything. And really, as I describe it, it's kind of like I had like a, I call it my quarter life crisis. It was like a midlife crisis, but I was 19 going on 20. And just, you know, things came up that I wanted to stuff down, but they just, they just came up and I filled a journal and bought another journal and filled that. And, and one of the things in that book was maybe I want to be, maybe I want to write or maybe I want to act, but, but it was so scary to see that on the page because I had no idea. I mean, I, I just, I didn't know what that meant. And I was kind of like, you know, I really wanted to go like, go away, go away. And I really did. I, I kind of had this epiphany that summer. It was, it was pretty incredible because I was out of my element. I was, you know, back then there were no cell phones. So when you were in Italy, you weren't talking, you had like a phone card, you know, to call home. So I didn't really call home. I was really on my own. I had this whole, rebirth in a way but then I came back to school and I played fall ball lacrosse again I went back to what was familiar and then it wasn't until the end of that fall ball I was running around our, our field at practice and I had this thought like man I wish I just rolled my ankle so I don't have to be here hmm. and, and I thought this is crazy like you need to you need to go tell coach you're done hmm. and I did and and you know, that was scary in and of itself, because once I made that decision, I thought, oh, my God, what did I do? But that cleared the space for me to then later on that year audition for play, you know, and, and which was totally out of left field for anybody that knew me. You know, right. in retrospect, it doesn't seem that crazy now. But at the time, it was like, what? You know, you play lacrosse, you're going to do a play? Like, what, what is happening here? So it was, it was a really, uh, it was a real 180 turn. You make that decision. I am going to be an actor. How did you do it? Um, my roommate and I, he had never acted either. We both, we <laughs> Two both, of you in the I same boat. Yeah, so <laughs> we both said we're going to go out for a play. We went out for a play. He got the lead. I didn't get anything. Right. 
he goes and, and does it. About a month later, another audition comes out. And, and this is for a play that's not even on the, the real stage at, at Boston College. It's like in a lecture hall. It was a, a, a one-act play called Hello Out There by William Saroyan. And I, I ended up getting the lead in this, but it was a tiny little production. Uh, I did it, and I absolutely loved it. I loved the people. I loved the experience. And I, I just, I did it, and I just said, I, I, literally, it was a two-night performance in a lecture hall. And I was done. I said, I'm going to be an actor. I mean, I just told anybody, I said, I'm going to be an actor. And I got, I was an English major, so I started taking film classes to get a film studies minor. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna go figure it out. And, you know, that was it. I made this bold proclamation. And then there, were, there was a time later, the following year, senior year, I remember coming back uh, Christmas break and I was working construction for my, my friend's dad. And I remember talking to my cousin and saying, I don't know, am I crazy? Like, what am I doing? And he goes, look, do it for three years. If you get nowhere, you can always go get a real job. And that was <laughs> great advice because after three years, I had made a little progress enough that I was, I was in, you know? But it was like, you just, I just needed the permission because I thought on, on one hand, you think you're, you're really crazy. Like, what am I, you know, how am I gonna be an actor? Well, what he, what he planted in your head is Matthew, there's always construction. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it'll always be there. Uh, I appreciate that. But now I, I take it the word no began to pile up quickly. Your roommate got the one role. You got a no. Then you got another no. When did the no's begin? Right from there? I mean, the no's began way before there. I'm just thinking about girls. and <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, right. Really, I, it, <laughs> it goes way back. We don't think of it that way. You're chasing, you're, you know, chasing girls that I like, that they weren't intimate, you know, so, right. you know, sports. I mean, I was never as strong or as fast as I wanted to be. I was never as good. So, so the no's are really, I think, intrinsic to just a part of life, you know, whether it's an actual no or it's just a challenge, everything felt like overcoming challenges you know now it's no it's literally knows i guess once you start to be an actor but you know i don't know i think it's for all of us who just like you just get knocked down all the time and you got to get back if you've done anybody who's listening who's accomplished anything you know big or small has overcome challenges that's just that's just the way it is nobody just gets it for free you're listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My host this evening is Matthew Del Negro. For those of you who want to hear the full episode, like many of you who listen in, we are going to go until the end of the ABC episode that will end at 930. However, for the full episode where we're going to discuss Matthew's book in, in greater detail, we are going to go to the YouTube channel. So feel free to move to there after you are listening on ABC. Matthew, you wound your way like a good mountaineer, climbing, zigging and zagging, nose all along the way until you landed yourself on the wonderful show called The Sopranos. Your orientation into The Sopranos was not exactly based on your book, A Straight Line, but ultimately you found your way there. What did you learn about yourself at 
that point in your acting career, like, oh my God, I am on this wonderful show, but I know there's a no and a but in there. Help us understand what that was like feeling the top of the mountain, or was it? Well, uh, you know, I clearly remember my first day on set there. It was intimidating. You know, that was arguably one of the greatest shows, if not the greatest show in television history. What I learned was by then I had been training for, you know, let's see, that was about seven years before I landed that. So I had been training. I had done independent films. I had done student films. I had done black box theater. I had done a lot. I was in class all the time, scene study classes, Shakespeare classes, movement classes, all of that. So <clears throat> on one hand, it was this huge, uh, just zeitgeist show. And on the other hand, the building blocks of acting, the fundamentals of acting apply no matter what you're doing. You know, it's still, you know, when you get into the actual scene, it's still, are you listening to your scene partner? Do you know who your character is? Do you know where you are, what you want, and what are you doing? What are the actions you're taking to get what you want? So in some ways, it was like I peeked behind the curtain and went, oh, okay, well, this is, this is the same thing I've been doing. It's just a much bigger stage. A lot more people are going to see it. So the external part of it, um, how it changed my life was it was the first time I'd be riding the subway and people would say something to me. Before that, people would say, what do you do? And it, it probably took me like three years to just say, I'm an actor, or maybe more than three years. Literally, there was like a 10 minute monologue before you could spit out, I'm an actor because you're like, well, I bartend, you know, I'm, I'm taking classes, but I bartend at such and such and I wait tables over here and da, 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 da. You know, I'm trying to be an actor. It's like a gradual thing before you could just own it and say, I'm an actor. Now I do this show and people are coming up to me saying, hey, I love you on Sopranos or hey, what's it like with Tony or whatever they're saying. And you, it, so, so in that way, the, you know, you could see the difference between the work, which is the real thing, the, the training, the work, the study, and then the external rewards from the work. It's not like I was a different actor on that day than I was two weeks before that I started that. But, you know, I was still the same actor, but I just was on a different stage. And you was know? life after The Sopranos, what happened? I went out to L.A. Uh, and my wife was had a job at the time, but wasn't happy. So I convinced her dumb. I said, you know, quit your job. Come with me. We're going to go. I went out there for uh, three or four months for pilot season. And it was like, I had all of these meetings and all of this movement and auditions and, and, you know, people were like, I love you on the show. Can you sign it? You know, it was crazy. I really thought like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to, you know, where's my show? Where's I've arrived. And, uh, not the case. I ended up bartending after that for, hmm. I want to say, another two years. Of wow. You know, Did and you still working. I worked more after that. I went back to The Sopranos, but not as much as I would have thought I was going to after that fourth season. Right. And, you know, back to the grind. Right. For most people would know you is Scandal. 
How did you feel when you got to Scandal about all those no's? Was it, oh my God, they're going to keep coming, or you know what, this is worth it, and this is just how it's meant to be? West Wing is the job that brought me out to L.A. I was there when I got it, and then it, it continued on, and we moved out there. Once I got out there, um, it was, you know, the, the beginning of my Los Angeles stint was kind of nonstop. It felt like nonstop work. It was West Wing. I was working on another show in Toronto. I was going back and forth. I said, this is gravy. This is incredible. That dried up. And then I had like seven. So, so it's still the, the starts and stops are inevitable for most actors. And there were times when really, really question what you're doing. And um, by the time Scandal came around, I had been doing this for long enough that you just, there's a faith that was really developed way back when, even in New York, but there's a, there's a faith that when sometimes you're, it's like, you know, you, you jump off that cliff and you have to just free fall and get wings. You know, if you don't make the leap, you can never fly. But making that leap is scary sometimes because sometimes it looks like you're going to plummet into the, into the ground below, you know. Um, but at that point, I had had enough of a pattern of every time I was down, something would, would come. Just when I thought, like, this is going to break me, something would come. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and so scandal, I mean, scandal, ironically, was, was an offer. That was, it was something that was not auditioned for, which is, you know, at that point certainly was not common and certainly not common for a hit show. But it was also, you know, we won't go into it, but that was because of a relationship with a casting director where I had something probably seven years prior to that that I kind of was supposed to get and didn't get. So there's always a story. If you look at everything, if you unscratch it, there's always like some, it's not just, it wasn't just that. Like, oh, they gave you this job. I was like, no, that was based on something that happened seven years before. Well, in your book, you narrated a lot of those twists and turns and things that were supposed to happen didn't, things that you didn't think were going to happen did. Someone who was in your life that wasn't exactly in your camp seven years later, perhaps they were. It's very cool on the twists and turns. What I'd like to do in the time that we have remaining, as part of your brand building, here you were acting and you're in these wonderful shows, but you decided to create a podcast. Why did you do it and who did you make it for? Well, that, it really came, it came after the heels of Scandal. Um, I had had a, uh, a year in 2015, I think it was, yeah, 2014 or 2015, that was, so busy. I, I just, it was really, I had never worked that consistently. I was recurring on several different shows. I did a movie with Reese Witherspoon and Sofia Vergara. I was doing uh, Scandal was one of those shows. And uh, I, I had done the, the Wind River with, with uh, Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen. And it was kind of like, I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is, again, you know, you momentum, momentum, momentum. And I'm not sure what happened but my storyline on Scandal really dried up kind of un unexpectedly. And I wasn't contracted to the show. And all of a sudden, it was a pilot season that was not particularly great for my demographic. 
this was in 2017. And so I felt really good in the audition rooms, but it was like, there were crickets. Nobody, nobody was asking me to be on their show. It was a really tough time of, of nothingness. And I just got to the point where I said like, you know, I'm not, I can't keep waiting around for someone else to approve me for me to then unleash my creativity or, or to, you know, I said, I need to build something that's mine. And I had been listening to podcasts and I had a friend with a pretty big podcast and I just said, okay, this is something I like this medium. I and I've always been interested in people and getting behind them and the conversation we're having right now, it's all about what's, what's the reality underneath the facade. And so that's what I, I just, I noodled on it for a long time. And then I just finally pulled the trigger right around the time actually that I got Goliath. Like I, I had come to this, the end of this really dry period and then Goliath came and that was coincided with, I had been leading up to preparing the podcast. I, I pulled the trigger, I did it. And it was, it was for anybody out there who was feeling stuck like I was feeling frustrated, feeling like they couldn't get to where they were going, feeling like they were beaten down. And it was for me, honestly, it was, it was for them. And it was for me. Uh, it, it, it's almost like it's, it's, and it's still like that to this day, I'm trying to help other people, but in the process, I'm really helping myself. It's, it's all the things that I'm wondering, you know, talking to, all of these high achievers and going, how did you do it? How did you get through it? I know you had a tough time. What did you do? And then I would just steal from them. I would steal techniques and mindsets yeah. and all that. And it's really helped. I mean, my career has been uh, on a really nice uptick since starting the podcast. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Talk about how you took that podcast and believing in yourself and what led to the book. And let's finish off with telling, telling the listeners about the book. Okay. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really believe and talk about a lot on the podcast is if, if you do the work, you know, not because you're looking for reward, but do the work because you really believe in it. Eventually people come out of the woodwork and, and help you out. But you got to really know when you look in the mirror that you're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it because you really care. Right. And sometimes when that's actually happening for me, it's easier to believe that there are some times when it feels like nobody's listening. And I go, is that just something I tell myself to make myself feel better? But usually it, it comes around. And that's what happened with the book. I had a guy, ironically, this traces back to Boston College, uh, a, a guy that I played with at BC, I guess was listening to the podcast. He's in finance, lives in San Francisco. And he emailed me and said, I love the podcast. You should meet this guy. Uh, John Gordon. He played lacrosse at Cornell and with a guy that I worked with. So I said, okay, we were put together. We met, we hit it off. Um, he, long story short, like months after the, the interview, he said his daughter was considering being an actor. Would I sit down with her? I did. I had coffee with her. I gave her the good, the bad, the ugly of what it's like to be an actor. And a week or two later, I had this ebook that I, I had written based on a, a speech I had given. And, and as I put it, as I looked at it, I said, Hey, I, I just like emailed it to him. I said, Hey, John, this is actually your daughter may like some of the, this is kind of the stuff that I told her, but she wants it. And, and literally that's it. 
he texts me back the next day and says, I love this, move this, change this, and send this to my publisher. And I was like, what? Two months later, I'm sitting down with this publisher in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, two months after that, I had a, a contract signed. And then shortly after that, I, I wrote the book. And it, so it's, but again, seems like, oh, that was so easy for you. How are you writing 10,000 no's? You just got a publishing deal. But I looked back recently in my computer and I have a document from like 10, 2013 that was a, a book that I was like starting going, oh, I could do these lessons that I've learned. And I said, possible titles. One of the titles was 10,000 no's. So the seeds were in there, even though I kind of forgot about them. And then I did the work and then this came about. And, and again, it seems like, oh, well, that was it. In this particular instance, yeah, the book happened very quickly. Um, but it didn't really. It, it's been being written since, you know, since college, I guess. A few things I want to cover. Where can they find you? The book was released on October 27th. Where can they find the book? Probably the easiest way is go to 10,000nos.com, which is 10000nos.com. And there's, you know, it's very clear there or matthewdelnegro.com. And it's also very clear there. You know, there's an Amazon author page, but I don't know the name of the, the, the link is confusing. So just go to one of those sites and, and you'll get it. And Matthew, to leave our audience with, and let me communicate to everyone listening, we are going to close on ABC in just a couple of minutes, but we are going to keep the entire episode available on my YouTube channel. You can also go to chuckgarcia.com and grab it on demand or to Spotify or even on the C-Suite network. Matthew's full episode will be available there. Matthew, what do you want our listeners who will come from all walks of life and tune in because these are stories of transformation? What do you want them to think, feel, and do about all the possibilities that are ahead of them? Um, that's a great question. I guess I want them to think that just because something is, is happening right now, just because the external world is maybe not accepting whatever idea or business or wish or that, that you have right now, it doesn't mean it's going to stay that way forever. Things change. Um, what I want them to feel, uh, I guess, um, some kind of faith and confidence in themselves that if, if they are really doing the things that need to be done, um, that this, you know, people are, are watching everything you do in, in a way, you know? So how you conduct yourself when you think no one's watching is, is that ends up being rewarded or, or not, depending on what you're doing. Um, so I guess it's like, you kind of like work humbly and, and just keep, keep doing what needs to be done. And then in terms of actions, I guess it's, you know, maybe that's to do, that would be what, what it is, is you know, work, honestly and humbly toward whatever it is that you really care about. Not what someone else cares or wants you to do, but what, what do you want? Matthew, thank you so much for coming on A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. You can hear the full episode and even watch it 
on my YouTube channel. Just if you Google Chuck Garcia YouTube, you'll find it. You can also find us at chuckgarcia.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please hit the contact button and we'd love to hear from you. But what a pleasure it has been, Matt. And if you will stay on, we're going to uh, go deeper onto the book. For, so for those of you who would like to hear in particular, we're going to focus on three chapters, risk, perseverance, and transformation. Matthew, thank you very much for contributing to the show. It's great to have you on Talk Radio 77W. Chuck, thank you so much. And thank you for all of the work you've done in preparation for this, this inter interview. It's, it's incredible. I'm awed by your preparation. I appreciate that, but, but it, it was a blessing because your book is wonderful, and that's what we're going to talk about now. We are with Matthew Del Negro. We are in part two of A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. It is a pleasure having him. In particular, what we were talking about is Matthew just released his book called 10,000 Knows, How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes. Let me state to our audience, I love this book. Now, as a transformation guy myself, it's the theme of my show. It was the theme of my book called The Climb to the Top. It's all about climbing that mountain, taking a step at a time, recognizing it's never as easy as you think, but by the time you get there and you get home, it is wonderful. And that's how I felt about this book. It wasn't just for actors. It transferred across any career. There were 16 chapters and every one of them was lovely in that it showed Matthew's vulnerability, but also his honesty and his will to help us to be inspired by his story. There were three particular chapters that I think spoke to me the most. And I wanna begin one of them with the quote, if you want to take the island, you need to burn the boats. Matthew, you used a wonderful description of Cortez coming over to the new world and they decided we're not going back to Spain. So what did they do? They burn the boats. Yeah, that said, right. you need, if you, you need to commit. Oh, sorry. Uh, we lost a little bit of the internet connection, Matthew. Can you give me a check? Um, still with me? Shoot. Okay. Give me a one, two, three. Yeah. I, you, you, uh, looks like we're back. Give me a one, two, three. One, two, three. Okay, one more time. Give me, give me one, two, three. One. Give me a D E F. D E F. Okay, we're gonna begin this again. I don't know what happened. Um, whatever. It's, uh, it's the internet. In this wonderful book, there were three chapters that I felt really spoke to me, and they were risk, perseverance, and transformation. And he started the chapter of, called Risk with, if you want to take the island, you need to burn the boats. Matthew, that was a really interesting approach to how you took risk. Why did you start it that way and what did you mean? Well, it was all about commitment. You know, I spoke to you a few minutes ago about if, if you want to fly, you need to jump off the cliff. You know, you, you can't, can't be in half out when it comes to a endeavor that that's going to require all of you. You need you need to go you need to be willing to fall on your face in order to uh, attain some goals. 
There was, I, I want to infuse risk chapter with something from an earlier chapter where you talked about two different things. You talked about mindset, the approach to how you're going to take this risk. We also talked about skill set in the context of instincts, that sometimes it's better if you stop preparing for something and in the moment, let what you were trained to do be your guidepost. Can you talk about the intersection of how to develop the approach of the mindset and how to let your instincts sometimes do the work for you? Yeah, I think it goes... I think the danger is if you just think, oh, I can rely on my instincts, then you're going to have, uh, in, in many cases, it may be hit or miss. I think if you combine incredible preparation and training with your instincts, then you're going to hit the target more consistently. And you kind of don't in my opinion, don't want to have one without the other because you could be completely prepared. But if you, if you stick to your preparation, I mean, you know, the greatest acting teachers will say, you need to do all of the background work. You need to do all of the, there, there, there is endless amounts of work that you can do to prepare for a role. But they all agree when you get to set, you know, when, when they call action or if you're doing a play, when you get on the stage, you have to drop the preparation and be alive and listening to what is happening in the moment and react off of your scene partner. And that is instinctual, but it's backed up by the preparation. The, the structure and the preparation allows for real freedom in the moment. But I also like the way you paralleled actors and athletes. In fact, in some cases, athletes on their second, on their transformation, already develop this instinct and this skill set, and they become pretty good actors. I really love the approach that you took for that. But that led to another cool chapter, which started with keep them chopping, keep them chopping, keep them chopping. And that was the perseverance chapter. And I really appreciate that because I felt that just these little beats and beats and beats and beats and keep trying. And what you stated is you cannot choose what will happen to you, but you choose how to react to it. And then I kept back in my mind, chopping, 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 the football coach. Talk about that chapter and how you approached it because I love this chapter. Yeah, uh, that was Coach John Hurley, my yeah. freshman football coach, who right. I love and I've actually been back in touch with, and and I'm so psyched that you pulled that quote out. I love uh, it. Yeah, that was his. That was his. Um, you know what? What? What's cool about that is that he would say that to when you were blocking, which is not a very, it's it's not a very uh, sexy part of football to block. But he would say, keep him chopping, keep him chopping, la, 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 la. All right. Nobody's, you know, people are looking at the tailback or the quarterback or, you know, they're looking at the, the skill positions, but, but the linemen, what are they doing? And you need to stick with your man. You need to, it, it's, it's relentless. It, right. It's, it's got to be this relentless drive forward. And so, yeah. That's what perseverance is. I mean, I guess that's why that popped into my head when I was writing that chapter, because it, it really is relentless because you, you continue to be knocked down. You've got to get back up, dust yourself off, get back in the game and keep them chopping. Yeah, and I think that is underestimated. In particular, Matthew, I, I teach college and my, my Columbia engineering students are real, but, but we're, we're not teaching them enough about this. 
about the perseverance, about just keep chopping. Sooner or later, you're going to get it. But getting an A on an examiner is, is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't test your perseverance, your emotional intelligence, how you react to changing circumstances, which leads us to another wonderful chapter. In chapter four, you talked about physical transformation. But in this chapter, you changed it just a bit because you talked about adapting and allowing aspects of ourselves that are no longer serving us while simultaneously cultivating emerging aspects of self to move us in new directions. That's the mindset of transformation. And you talked about Don Saladino, who often said, do less, not more in the beginning, in small increments. Talk about that thing, these little increments, because it sounds like your story is increments, one step at a time, increments. Yeah. He, I loved when Don said that when, when I interviewed him. He's trained, you know, Hugh Jackman, Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, these people oh. that have had these, you know, incredible transformations. And then also, you know, kind of your everyday person or, or uh, someone who's obese and having really, you know, a lot of physical issues. And I said to him, what is your number one takeaway? And, and that's what he said. He said, if someone's drinking four glasses of wine every Friday night, he said, I'm not going to start out right off the bat and give them this, the same program that Hugh Jackman is on or that Ryan Reynolds is on. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say, you're having four glasses every Friday night? Have three glasses every Friday night. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, because when they have three, they feel a little bit better Saturday morning. They get a better workout. They feel better. The next time they go, oh, that felt good. And, and they come to it on their own. And when it's gradual, it's going to stick. You know, it, when, it, when, you, when you try to go out of the gate, you know, like zero to 100, you don't usually stick with it. So you could have gains, but you're going to lose them just as quickly as you got them. It's all about transforming little by little to where this becomes your new normal. Well, you, you illustrated, and I loved Goliath, and the character you played named Danny Loomis, you transformed. But there was a quote a little bit later on that if the transformation is pulled off the way that it's supposed to, viewers sometimes complain nothing happened. It's as if we didn't even notice it because it felt so natural to the viewer. Is that the way you see it? I do. And that's something I, you know, there's a book, one of my favorites that I've given to so many people, Sidney Lumet making movies. And he talks about when he did Long Day's Journey into Night as a film, some of the critics said, all he did was, was, you know, he filmed the play, like he didn't do anything as a filmmaker. But when he goes into what he did and what they did with makeup and lighting and camera angles from act one to the end of the play, it's incredible, the minute, just, just tweaking of perspective. And he said, if you look at the first frame of that movie and the last frame of that movie, you're gonna see this huge transformation. But they did it so deftly that a lot of critics didn't even see it. Yeah, isn't that interesting one? And I wanna finish up with your friend, Chris Messina. And Chris was on a set, or you were on the set, and it was a phone call between the two of you. And Chris said, this, is rarefied air. And when I first read that, I said, what the hell does that mean? And I kept on, I want to leave our audience with that because I thought it was such a powerful thing when I began to understand what you and or Chris meant by that. 
explain that in the context of transformation. He was working on a film with Ben Affleck, and we've had this, you know, we've been friends from back in the early days. So we're, it's like we're practically brothers and we exchange notes on everything we're doing and, you know, uh, really go in depth and, and can talk acting for days and days and weeks and weeks and years and years. And, and he was explaining that he said, it's like rarefied air up here. It's like, you know, you have Affleck directing. He also wrote the script. You had incredible cinematographers, the, the best costume designers, the best everything, like every department. Ironically, the film didn't do very well. It, but, but he was saying it's rarefied air. When you go in for your fitting and you're talking to a costume designer who has such specific ideas of why this character is wearing your clothes and what do you think? And it's a collaboration. And, and that's what he was talking about, verif rarefied air, was that every single department, it was like the best of the best. It, the nuance, the attention to detail. And still, the movie could not land with audiences. So yeah. it's, it's, again, two different things between what the process is and what the results or the rewards are. Right. You don't always know the outcome, but what I got out of the book, as long as you stay true to your center, stay true to your reality, keep doing what you were trained to do. But also what I loved about that and why I want to include with that, I think so much of this is about the people that we either we put into our space where we choose or they choose us. Because so much of it, you talked about all of the people on your podcast that have had an impact on you. And when I think about, we are about 40 shows in the climb to the top. Many mountaineers, actors, produce, music producers, they've all had an impact on me. And, and Matthew, I want to leave them with, with respect to your wonderful book called 10,000 No's. We stated it earlier in the episode about what we want to leave them with, but what I'd like you to end with, what did you learn about Matthew Del Negro that, that, you, that may have surprised you? While writing the book? Yeah. Maybe that I could finish writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've all been yeah, there, they, done that. They first told me 55,000 words. I said, yeah. what? And then Are you serious? When, yeah, when I, I ended up going over on it and had to cut some out. But um, I say that you wrote it for us. But what you said earlier, sometimes you, do, you did the podcast for you. Yeah. And here you, you know what? I, I'd say the main takeaway. And, yeah. and you know, you brought up our mutual friend, Allison Levine, right. before, we, before we sat down. Who's, who's a mountain climber. Mountaineer, author, yeah. Mountaineer. Author, uh, yeah, on the edge. She, years ago, said to me, when I started the podcast and actually asked her to come on, she said, you know, you really, with your, your theater training and with your story, you could really go speak the way I do. And I said, well, no. And I kind of played down all the reasons why I couldn't. And she said, no, your story, long story short, telling your story, and that's what this book is. When you tell your story, when you own your story and don't apologize for it, that's what I learned was, oh, give yourself some credit. Even when I started writing the book and I called John Gordon, I said, well, it's going to be about the guests and this and that. And he said, no, the guests can be a, a backdrop but it's your story. He said, you need to tell the story that only Matt Del Negro can tell. And I think in the beginning, I was, uh, I was unsure about that. 
owning my story. And that, that's what I would say to anybody who's listening, whether you write a book or not, exercise the part of your mind that, that views your life where you're the protagonist and, and you're the hero and put it in a narrative that actually empowers you rather than puts you down. Because I spent a lot of time just putting myself down and giving everybody around me credit. And sometimes when you, when you tell your story, you're going, and, and certainly I'm not holding my story up as this, this story of struggle. So many people, and I say this in the book, have struggled and, and had so much more pain than I've experienced. I am very fortunate and, and grateful for the life I've had. But I have had my own struggles within my own little spectrum. And telling the story in that way was really, uh, I think, good for my overall outlook on, on life and just my kind of my view of myself, you know? And still, it's not like every day I look at it that way, but it, it helps, it's helped. Well, congratulations, Matthew, on the book, the podcast, the wonderful acting career. It has been a pleasure hosting you, and thank you for contributing to a climb to the top. Thank you, Chuck. As I said, your preparation, your attention to detail, and just your humanity in asking these questions, it's, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. So I, I, I hope your, your listeners. I appreciate Actually, one other thing, you are working on a cool series now that brought you to New York. Actually, let's end with that. What are you working on? What can we expect? And when can we expect to see it? We are working on season two of City on a Hill. Right. Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge are the uh, two leads. And I was I came in halfway through the first season and now I'm a regular this season. And uh, we're still shooting. And I believe it will be coming out on Showtime early in the year of 2021. I'm not sure if it'll be January, February, March, but somewhere around there. Well, congratulations and best of luck on the uh, best of luck on the book. It is wonderful. We look forward to hearing and seeing you more on television, on the podcast, and maybe more books. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It. All the best. Bye bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.